0: Christmas is a time of celebration, and I'm sure you're all celebrating, am I right? Everybody here have the good sense to celebrate Christmas? Every once in a while, I meet people that say, "I don't celebrate Christmas. And I always want to go. feel really bad for you because it's a great celebration. You ever, have you ever noticed that uh, Christmas is rarely, if ever, though, just a celebration. you ever notice that? almost always there's something more. It's a season of celebration. I remember one year, it was also a season of loneliness for me. My dad went to Vietnam, and I just felt so lonely for him. It was a season of celebration, and it was a season of loneliness for me. And for the church, for the congregation, I pray for you, and I think about you. And and for, for all of you, Almost all of you, it's a season of celebration. But for some of you, it's also a season of hospice. A season of celebration and a season of hospitalization. It's a season of celebration and it's a season of unemployment. I was praying for one of our families and thinking about them. It's a season of celebration, unemployment, and extended illness. And you just can't separate them out. You got both together. And it's probably safe to say, you know, there are people here that's a season of celebration, and it's a season of marital discord. Or it's a season of marital interruption, or it's a season of separation, or it's a season of divorce. For some of us, it's a season of celebration, it's also a season of grief over children that are making the wrong choices. Or who are far from God. And if I thought through the congregation. I could list dozens of things. That also occupy this season. That really is a season of celebration. I know for a number of you this year. When you gather for your celebration at Christmas time. And it's such a happy time. And you know you break out your best recipes. And you give away your favorite gifts. And you wear your favorite clothes. And And you're going to look across the table and there's going to be that place where that person sat for years and they are not going to be there this year. And it just can't be a season of unbroken celebration with that seat empty. Even if you know the Lord, there's something that comes along with the celebration. Grief, pain, hurt, loneliness, brokenness. You know, one of the songwriters, one of the hymn writers, the carol writers, wrote about it like this, it came upon a midnight clear, that glorious song of old, in which the carol talks about the song of the angels, and then there's this phrase, this this verse that I've always thought was meaningful, oh you beneath life's crushing load, whose forms are bending low, who toil along the climbing way with painful steps and slow. Look now, for glad and golden hours come swiftly on the wing. Oh, rest beside the weary road, and, and hear the angels sing. The, 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 uh, the, the carol writer acknowledges that Christmas is not just a time of celebration, but it's also a time where you might be having a crushing load you know, to deal with. And I want to help you. I want to encourage you. If this isn't true about you right now, you, you, you know it's going to be because that's the way life is. If it's not true about you that you're that you're hurting right now, there, there, there are going to be co- things that, that are going to try to come and, and put out the fire of your faith. Have, have you read that Jack London short story, uh, uh, To Build a Fire? How many of you read that? Raise your hand if you read the Jack London short story, To Build a Fire. Not a very literate group here. Yeah, So... Let me, let me school you on this, all right? So the, the, the whole story, I'll tell you the whole story in a, in a nutshell. So there's this guy in the Yukon. He doesn't have a name. He's going to take a walk with his dog. He's gonna, it's going to be an all-day walk. He's a, he's, a, he's a stout fellow. He knows that he can do this. He's an outdoorsman. He has all the clothing for it. He doesn't reckon on it being as cold as it really was. It's 75 degrees below zero. And so, how the story goes is, he makes his way on this walk, and about halfway to the point of his destination, he falls through the ice and he gets wet. And he tries to build a fire, and in trying to build the fire, um, his hands are cold and numb, and he and he can't negotiate that. Well, finally, gets a fire going, and the fire melts the snow and the tree above him, and the snow puts the fire out. Ooh, yeah, you like that? You like that part? It's like ooh, ah. Storyteller always knows when it's working, when people say, ooh, ah. That's, yeah. So story puts the fire out. And then, with his last pack of matches and his hands are so numb, he tries to light the matches, and all the matches light at the same time. Um, so he dies. It's not, a happy, it's not a happy story. You're like, glad I came to church today, Pastor, because you are really cheering me up but i 've often thought we're a lot like that guy in the story, trying to keep the fire going here, and about the time I get a little flame, something comes and and you know dumps snow on my fire. A season of celebration and a season of loneliness, a season of celebration and a season of mourning a season of celebration, a season of unemployment, of need of lack of pain. Uh, and, And what do we do about this? Well, some people have a robust faith. I was listening to Francis Chan, great preacher. And Francis Chan was telling about how he wrote a book. He said, he's Asian guy, and he says, I'm, I'm good at math. I'm not good at, at, at writing, but God had me write a book. And so he said the book then became a bestseller, and he and his wife agreed that they would, if the, the money that would come in from the book, that they would give it away. And millions, a couple of million dollars, over $2 million have come in uh, from this book, so they've just given stuff away. He said he and his wife started giving things away, and they realized how you know, that what Jesus said is true, it's more blessed to give than receive, and so he said they just started giving away more stuff, he, he lives on like 10% of his income, and he gives away like 90% of his income, and he and his wife got to the, they were saying, this is such a delight to give stuff away, they gave away their, they got, they got rid of their house, and moved into a lot, a smaller house, and, 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 and it goes on and on, and he says, people often warn him, well, what if you give too much stuff away, and you, what if you don't have, Enough stuff left over when you get to the end of your life. And he goes, well, I, I think, first of all, I don't think God's going to let that happen. I think he's going to take care of me. But if he wants me to die, he'll say, he says, what a way to go to heaven. Hey, God, I'm here. I died. I gave all my stuff away, and I starved to death. Here I am. Oops, he says. He says, what a way to meet the Lord. And I heard him say that. I thought, okay, I don't have that much faith. You know what I mean? It's like, you know, I've worked hard to get the few little things that I have. I, I you know, I, I, I want to be careful and prudent about how much I give away. What, what, how would you, how would you get a roaring fire of faith like that going? And, and this is where we're going to go back to Genesis. And so we've been talking about Genesis and Christmas, Christmas and Genesis. And my point here today is I want to show you how to keep the fire of hope alive, how to keep the fire of faith and hope and obedience alive even when you're going through uh, difficulty. And Genesis, the the, the Genesis account can help us. Let me show you how this works. Now, now understand um, that one of the words I want you to see is generations. And I want you to think generations. When you read Genesis, you should think generations. Because Genesis, if you study Genesis carefully, what you find out is that Genesis has a very clear literary structure. And the literary structure, the, the way that Genesis works is it has 11 sections in it. I'm not going to get too teachy here, so don't freak out. It has 11 sections in it, and every one of those sections begins with a Hebrew word that means these are the generations of, and it gives a bit of a genealogy. So Genesis is full of genealogies. That should make you think, because when you read the stories about Christmas, where do you find the best stories about Christmas in the Bible? I'll tell you. You find them in Matthew, and you find them in Luke, that's right. And in Matthew, Matthew starts with what? A genealogy. It's kind of like, oh, people that are familiar with the Old Testament, which the readers of Matthew would definitely have been, would immediately recognize this is a continuing story. And it's a genealogy, this is important. When you get to Luke, Luke, does, Luke is, uh, has uh, some literary flair. And Luke uh, is actually kind of a two-volume thing, acts, Luke acts, you know. But what Luke does... Is he, he, he pulls us into the story first, and then we get to chapter 3, what does he do? You guessed right, a genealogy. A significant part of the, of the celebration of Jesus' birth story is genealogy. Now, why is that? Because Jesus didn't just pop on the scene without forethought. Jesus' birth was planned in the heart of God, and that's what Genesis shows us real clearly. There are these generations, these genealogies. Reader's Digest is, well, I think we all kind of appreciate that. Please condense this for us so I don't have to be here all day. Reader's Digest decided that they were going to put together a Reader's Digest condensed Bible. And I suppose that's a, that's a, that's a, they meant well. And when they did that, one of the things they decided to leave out of the Reader's Digest condensed Bible, guess what? The genealogies. Now that would be a mistake because the genealogies are really important. As a matter of fact, let me just say it this way. How do we know? that we, when, we, when you begin to read Genesis, you begin to realize that it's got layers of kind of literary sophistication to it. At first, when you read it, you go, oh, it just looks kind of like one of those, oh, there's a first man, first woman. And it looks like it has kind of almost like ancient myths that you read. It almost has that kind of flavor to it initially. You look at that and you go, and some people have said, well, this could be true. Or it could just be symbolic, right? You could just be symbolic. Some people say could be just you, you're getting quiet at the right time. You're like, is he really saying that? Like, I'm not saying I believe that. I'm saying there are people who believe that, right? They say it could be true, or it could be kind of contain an ethical truth in a poetic form symbolically. How do we know that it's not just kind of an epic poem with a literary, with a literary sophistication? How do we know that's not true? Well, that's true, but also genealogies are in it. In other words, if it was just like an epic poem, and the the characters whose names could just represent all of mankind and all of womankind, if that's all that it was, it is that. But it's much, much more than that. As a matter of fact. There is such a sophisticated literary structure in Genesis. You would be shocked if we were to begin to show it to you. There is this like out and back literary structure that's often used in Hebrew and Greek literature. This kind of uh, it's uh, called a chiasm. It's an out and back literary structure where instead of just presenting things left to right like we tend to do, it goes it goes out and then comes back over the same territory, repeating it. And the big idea is in the middle. Did I lose you yet? And there and every one of the eleven sections has that structure within it. And there are a whole bunch of other things. In other words, maybe, just maybe, right? This book was not just conceived of and written by a man, but by God. And we know that it was. God wrote the Bible. God wrote Genesis. It has a deep literary sophistication. And, and you could study all your life and still keep unearthing fascinating things about Genesis. But just to, just to look at it and recognize that it has dozens and dozens of names of actual people time and space history, is to tell us this is not just a literary masterpiece given in a poetic form. It's much more than that. It is time and space history, and it not only is history, but it is prophecy. It is predictive prophecy. Dozens and dozens of places in Genesis are then fulfilled in prophecy in the future. As a matter of fact, you know, the New Testament directly quotes Genesis well over 125 times. In direct quotes, not just references, but direct quotes of chunks. And so the greatest people in, in the Christian church quote Genesis as being literally true. Jesus quotes Genesis as being literally true. If you don't think that Genesis is literally true, I, I may I like you, I feel sorry for you, but I, since Jesus said it's literally true, then I believe that it's literally true. Time and space history given to us in the book of Genesis, and one writer said it this way, Genesis, you know, of course, we, we don't want to just isolate the little story, you know, Genesis is just chock full of, fascinating stories. But you don't want to just isolate the little stories of Genesis and get little morals out of them. This is a much deeper thing than that. It's the beginning of what one writer called the unfolding drama of redemption. Don't you love that phrase? The Bible is the unfolding drama of the story about how God sent his son Jesus to rescue a fallen race, fallen mankind. Another way of saying it is this way. The Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, is God's epic story about how hope will always stay alive in the human heart because of Jesus. Isn't that awesome? The unfolding drama of redemption. The point is, this is real life. This is real life. And, that, and God is doing something, even in the darkest of times. So you ever wonder when really bad things are happening to God? What are you doing What's going on right now? This wasn't supposed to happen like this. God, I'm hurting, and you're not supposed to let me hurt. Why? Why is this happening? Holly wouldn't mind me telling you the story that she felt like she was an old maid before she got married. Now, I didn't think she was. She seemed a little young to me, but she felt like she was getting to be an old maid. And so, you know, if you listen to that conversation, every once in a while, a fellow would come along, you know, and that wouldn't quite work out, and the guys would kind of come and go. And, and, and at one point, she was really discouraged. And she thought she was going to, like, never marry, and no one would ever love her. And, you know, and Her brother called. Uh, brother Kyle called to encourage her. And he started out really well. Uh, he said, Holly, I heard about this guy, you know, don't worry about that. You know, he said, he said Holly, listen to me. God, he's doing something. That sounded good. That's, he's a pastor. That sounded like pastor talk right there. God is doing something. And then he kind of ran out of material, and he said, I have no idea what he's doing. But he's got to be doing something. (laughs) And now for years, whenever somebody's in a problem, we go, well, we know God's doing something. We have no idea what he's doing, but he's got to be doing something. And, you know, that's true, though. That's true. You say, well, what, God? What, What are you doing? And you don't hear anything. You're like, I don't know. Sometimes, you know, he gives you that immediate answer. Often not. God, what are you doing? you got to be doing something. What Genesis tells us is this. God is always doing something. God has a purpose, a redemptive purpose, to buy the world back and people that are in it, to redeem the world back out of slavery, right? God has a purpose to fix the brokenness. And his purpose is in his son. He has a plan, and he has patience. It's going to take a long time. And he has power to make it happen. And that's why you got to remember that whatever it is that you're going through, along with celebrating Christmas, whatever else season that you're in, you want to see it on the grid of this grand redemptive story. And that will keep hope alive in your heart. You see this also when you compare. And by the way, that's why Peter said, in First Peter he said, this is kind of interesting. He said, "We did not follow cleverly devised tales when we told you about the glory and the majesty of Jesus." Peter Peter was saying, "We were not making up little like nursery rhyme myths." We weren't just giving you, like, trying to come up with some kind of excuse for creation. No, no, no. This is the revelation of the glory of Jesus Christ, who always existed, and his redemptive plan is in the mind of God before the world began, and it's unfolding in a beautiful drama right now. And that helps me, and that helps you and you realize I'm not just a guy trying to keep the fire of faith alive. I'm in this grand redemptive program of God. I'm a, I'm a player in this, redempt, this unfolding of God. Redemption, I'm going to be the subject of his redeeming grace someday. I'm going to be the object of his redeeming grace. And all of creation is too. That just helps a lot, right? And so when you compare Revelation and, and Genesis, you see this. So let's go through this quickly. What we've got to do here is a comparison. Three things we're going to show you what's similar, what's different, and what's completed, started in Genesis and completed in Revelation. See how quickly I can do this. Just notice this. Here are things that are similar. They're, they're, the, they're the same. You see them in Genesis. You also see them in Revelation. There's the new beginning in Genesis and in Revelation. There's a new order in Genesis and in Revelation. There's the tree of life and a river and a bride. In Genesis and Revelation, there's God walking with men in Genesis, and it's in Revelation. And you have a morally and spiritually ideal gardens. Notice those are similar things. Notice the things that are different, or that are contrasted, and they, they would be these. And you can just load the whole slide, and I'll go through it really fast. Paradise is closed in Genesis, open in Revelation. The, the garden is dispossessed or lost because of sin in Genesis. It's repossessed in Revelation. There's a curse imposed in Genesis and lifted in Revelation. There's the tree of life disinherited or lost in Genesis, the tree of life gained back in Revelation. There's the beginning of sorrow and death, and the Bible says in Revelation there will be no more sorrow and no more death. The garden is defiled in Genesis. In Revelation, there's no defilement. Remember, it says nothing that's defiling is going to be allowed to come in here It'll be a place where no sin is gonna be allowed in, no perversion, no defilement of any kind. Dominion is broken in Genesis, restored in Revelation. Here's my favorite one the serpent is triumphant in Genesis. Who's triumphant in Revelation? The lamb. Isn't that good? That just has a sweet ring to it, doesn't it? There's the walk with God interrupted in Genesis, but in Revelation, the walk with God is restored. That's the sweetest description of the new heaven and the new earth coming. Together is God would dwell with men. Notice what started in Genesis and completed in Revelation in the next slide. And go ahead and load that. You'll notice that there's a garden in Genesis and it becomes a garden-like city in Revelation. Sin is introduced in Genesis, but it comes to its full ugliness in Revelation and its end as well. Uh, Beginning of death in Genesis and the second death in Revelation. Sentence is passed on Satan... In Genesis, but sentence is executed in Revelation, one of my favorite parts, and the first promise of his coming is given in Genesis, and the do fi- you see they go together? Now you say, Pastor, I don't get it. What's the point? Why this little history lesson thing? It should be really clear to you. You're not just like dropped into the middle of a bunch of random events. You and I live between these two stories. In the middle of the story, between these two stories, the beginning and the culmination of what God is doing. God is doing something. Isn't that great? And you want to be a part of what God is doing. You want to lean into what God is doing. You want to step into what God is doing. You want to believe and follow the Lord and trust him, and when things get really hard, and your hands are shaking, and it's dark and cold everywhere, and you feel like giving up, and you wonder if the promises are still true, that's the most important time you need to realize that God always keeps his promises going forward. Now, let's look at Genesis a little bit here, and I want to show you something. Go to the next slide, and you'll notice an overview of Genesis, and load that. It's kind of neat to look at Genesis this way. Chapters 1 through 11 are really critical. They're, like the, they're, they're the beginning of humanity itself, and they're the four parts creation fall flood and the division of nations in that situation with with babel right tower babel and then the next part is based on the patriarchs abraham isaac jacob and joseph and that's chapters 12 through 50 and what you're seeing here is again it's not just a few little kind of mythical moralistic stories no you see this is going somewhere this has a trajectory to it god's planning something he's got a purpose he's got a plan He's got patience, he's got power. And when we realize, I just plug, I just realize I'm in this grand sweep of God's plan. Then I trust him when the lights go out, and I trust him when my hands get cold, and I trust him when I lose a loved one. And I trust him when stuff happens to me that I thought was never gonna happen to me. And I so said, God is still God. His word is still true. What he's doing is still going to happen. And I want to be a part of that. I'm gonna keep moving forward in obedience to God. I'm gonna keep trusting God. I'm gonna keep praying. I'm gonna keep serving God because I know that. how the story ends. That's the idea. Now you see this in Genesis beautifully, and when you think especially about the original audience in Genesis, few people write or talk about who was the original audience. Who was the Pentateuch written to? Well, it's written to the children of Israel, right? Okay. But when, and where were they, and what was going on? You know, you get a lot better idea of a story, what a story means when you actually kind of see who the story was written to and how, what's going on. Okay, so imagine now that the children of Israel have become a nation. They've gone through Egyptian bondage. God has taken them out of Egyptian bondage. And now they're in a place called Moab, which is on the other side of the Jordan River, looking over into the place that we now kind of call Israel, into the promised land, they called it. Promised because it was promised to them. And so there are these grand promises that were given to these children of Israel. The, the, and You're going to have your own land. You're going to have your own people. You're going to become a great nation, and you're going to bless other nations and so forth. We'll get to that in a minute. But they have to go in and take the land. It's like, oh, and by the way, there are really, you know, there are really bloodthirsty people who live there who are not going to like it when you, when you come. So a couple of things that are going on in their heart. Number one, there is this great promise that we're supposed to go and, you know, and, and to possess this promise. And number two, it's going to be hard. So what does God do? Moses, I want you to write down the stories, and I want you to read it to the people. Because these stories are going to fire up their hearts in faith, knowing that I am doing something. Get it? I'm doing something with them, and that will help them move forward courageously. You're a single mom, and that's got to be the hardest thing. And it just seems like stuff that is easy for other people is hard for you. Just getting to work is hard for you. Paying the bills is hard for you. Christmas is a big stress for you. You can can very easily lose your place and think, what in the world? What's going on? It's like everybody else is celebrating and I'm just struggling right here. But you are a part of that grand drama of redemption. Even when the fire of your hope is burning low, you place yourself in this story and you realize God has a purpose. He has a plan. He has patience. He has power. And you're a part of that. And one day, It's going to be very bright for you in the meantime he's doing something and you're doing something if you participate with him we'll show you that in a minute so let's look at some of these promises a couple of things you'll notice about Genesis that I think are interesting one is that in Genesis you have pictures of Jesus lots of pictures we're not really the messages are not really based on pictures of Jesus we could do this but but we're not doing this right now we're, we're talking about prophecies, but the pictures, in the, in the New Testament, there are f- four different words in the Greek that are used as words that are examples of how we find types and shadows and copies and signs in the Old Testament. So like, for instance, some of those crazy laws, like why are, the, so some of the laws that you really maybe don't understand in the Old Testament are signs or shadows or pictures of beautiful truths in the New Testament, and we know that because they're identified as such in the New Testament. And so you have some crazy examples of that. Like, for instance, Peter says the ark is a picture of salvation. Peter says that. So that's interesting. John says the ladder in Jacob's ladder. Remember in Jacob's ladder, this is a picture of Jesus in Genesis. That Jacob's ladder, that's a picture of the, Jesus is the way to God coming and going in your life. So there's some other examples of this in the Bible. We could go on and show you other pictures. And we're not trying to stretch things. I'm just talking about things that are specifically identified in the New Testament as signs as pictures, as symbols. In other words, it's a lot bigger story than we're thinking because God had in mind stuff that he was doing as as putting a tug on the hearts of people toward this grand redemptive program. He wants that to stay alive in your heart too. Even if you lose your job, even if your kids aren't not doing what you wish they were doing, he wants to keep that hope alive. It's important that hope stays alive. So you want to locate yourself in God's story. Now, you see this in in some, not just pictures in Genesis, but there are also prophecies of Jesus in Genesis. These are called messianic prophecies. And I want you to notice I've listed seven major messianic prophecies. Now, within each one of these, like chapter 3 and verse 15 was my message two weeks ago, in there really are kind of three or four different prophecies. But these are seven places where you find messianic prophecies. And I want to show you something about them because it's interesting. They're kind of alike. And they all are kind of moving the same thing forward, the same promise forward. And it's it's it's, it's beautiful. So you have in Genesis 3:15, in some versions of the Bible, it will say seed, in other versions of the Bible, it will say descendants, In other versions of the Bible, it will say offspring. Let's just go back and use that seed thing and just use that. It's interesting to say seed. There's the promise of the seed of the woman. Remember this? In other words, it was a it was a, it was a reference to Jesus, that Jesus was going to come the only one who ever came from a woman but not from a man, right? Jesus, the seed of a woman, a descendant. But the word seed is kind of interesting because a seed has life in it even when it looks like it's dead. And that's why it works here, When you go from Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, the next time there's a Messianic prophecy is kind of shadowy. It is in Genesis 4 and verse 25. And this is what happens. Before each one of these beautiful prophecies kind of rises like the dawn into the hearts of people and keeps the fire of their faith alive, what happens first? Something bad happens. So Adam and Eve, they go in a garden. It's like, that's good. They sin. That's bad. There's a curse. That's not good. But in the curse, where where God says, you know, you're going to crawl on your belly, and woman, you're going to have pain in childbirth, and man, you're going to sweat, and he also says, and there's that, you're going to crush, you're going to bruise his heel, but he's going to crush your head, and so there's that little hope in the middle of that judgment that God is pronouncing in the garden, a curse, he's pronouncing a curse, he opens a little bit, he, he, he strikes a match of faith, and he says, but there's going to be, and it's kind of mysterious. And it's like, what is that seed of woman? It's, he intentionally makes it mysterious because it's the glory of rulers to conceal a matter. And it's the glory of a man to seek it out, a man us, a, a wise man a woman. Seek that out. And that's what he wants us to do to understand the Bible. And so in chapter 3 and verse 15, you have the seed of the woman. But what happens then? So he gives them this promise. He says that there's going to be a descendant. So then what happens to Adam and Eve? They have descendants, right? Cain and Abel, and then the bad kid kills the good kid. So the good kid is murdered, and the bad kid has a curse on him. What what's up with that? So the fire of their faith could easily have gone out. But then when you get to chapter four, you notice that it says in verse 25, and Adam knew his wife again. She bore a son and called his name Seth, for he said, and Seth means appointed. For God has appointed me for another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and his name was Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. You catch it? You see what's going on? What's happening is, about the time the fire of hope goes out, God blows on it a little bit and says, But don't be discouraged. That seed promise is still alive. Then you move to the next one, and it's Shem. And and, and what happens in between? What happens in between four and nine? Is it good or bad? It's bad. Okay, so think about it like this, okay? You have the garden, that's good. And then you have the fall, that's bad. And then you have this promise that's embedded in the curse, and that's good. And then you have your one son kills your other, and that's bad. Then you have another son, and the seed is alive, and that's good. And then you have the whole world sinning against God, and he brings a flood of judgment, and that's bad. And everybody on the Earth dies, everybody. They're all dead, right? Except one family. And on the boat, there's this little fire of faith that's still burning. Isn't that interesting? And so then you get on the other side of a flood, and you get to chapter nine and, and verse 26. And, and by you, if we took the time, we could read a bit about um, we could read a bit about Noah. And how God kept the faith alive in Noah. And yet Noah wasn't some heroic character altogether. Because he also did things that were not really very good. That you wouldn't want your kids to do. And yet it's not like God has these moral characters that he keeps raising up. Look how good they are. trying to be good. Because you can be good. That's not the story of the Bible. It's like God where the fire of hope is about to die out. The promise of God comes back uh, to life. And in chapter 9 there and verse uh, 25 he said cursed be Canaan servant of servants. Shall he be to his brothers? He said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, let him dwell the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. In other words, he says, There's gonna be a blessing. There's this curse, but then there's the blessing, and the blessing is gonna follow this one. And this is a messianic promise how do we know it's a messianic promise because it says it is in the new testament and in, in particular you can find each of these names in luke chapter 3 in the genealogies specifically mentioned that's why we shouldn't cut the genealogies out because they belong there to tell us that, the direction that the story is going let me just show you one more this morning uh, before i before i wrap things up and that's in chapter 12 but what happens in chapter 11 is it going to be good or bad yep you're right it's bad In chapter 11, the people get together and they decide that they're going to kind of outwit God and they're going to build a big tower to the sky. And then God says, no, now I'm going to have to separate the nations. And now what you see on the evening news in Aleppo and all the horrifying things that just ring the heart of humankind are because nations have been divided and because they've gone their own way and they fight with one another and there needs to be somebody to come back together who would be like the king over all of that right, and bring everybody together in peace and harmony. Something in the human heart longs for that. We sing about that at Christmas time, and this is what the Bible says. In Genesis, it gets a little bit more specific. Genesis chapter 12 now, and this is what we would call the Abrahamic covenant. Now the Lord says to Abram, go from your country and from your kindred and your father's house to the land that I'll show you. I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you, make your name great, and you will be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now, this is getting really interesting. Because if you, if you, if you look in Romans, and I want to show you something. Uh, look at Galatians. If I were to ask you, where in the Bible would you find the gospel? Some of you would say, well, it must be in one of the gospels. The gospel must be in one of the gospels, right? Some of you would say that. Um, some of you would say, oh, you know, 1 Corinthians would be a place where I would find the gospel. And you would find the gospel in 1 Corinthians. We're turning to Galatians right now in chapter 3. And you might say, I get it. The gospel is in Galatians chapter 3. And I would say, yes, the gospel is in Galatians chapter 3. But in Galatians chapter 3, it says something amazing. So Paul writes to the Galatians that, that God preached the gospel Well, let's just read it. Notice this, chapter uh, 3 and verse 7. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. And you think, where did he do that? Well, keep reading. In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed, along with Abraham, a man of faith. What's he saying? Paul, in Galatians, is saying God preached the gospel to Abraham when he gave him the Abrahamic covenant. That's kind of cool. God had the gospel, the good news, in mind, and he told Abraham, in his version of the gospel, I'm going to bless you, and then I'm going to curse those who curse you, I'm going to use you to bless all the other nations, the Gentile nations, all the families of the earth, will be blessed through you. That's an amazing messianic promise, and it happens through Christ. Now, how do we know that? Look in Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. Go ahead and turn there. Romans chapter 9, or scroll there, or whatever. In Romans chapter 9, and listen to what it says. In Romans chapter 9, someone told me this week that I, I tell you to turn places, and then I read it before you can get there. So I'm like, Romans chapter 9 and verse 3. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are the Israelites. Now he describes the Israelites, right? The descendants of Abraham. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship. And listen, the promises. And to them belong the patriarchs and from their race according to the flesh is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Get it? The good news, the gospel, is that Jesus is the seed, is the one that's going to come to rescue the world and reign over the world and be the king over the world and make everything that's wrong right. And there'll be purpose to celebrate completely unbroken celebration at some point in the future. And so this is how you keep hope alive. Moving the f- blessing forward in a world that's cursed. Let me tell you three things. Okay, I'm to have a little slide. And I'll tell you these three things. I want to embed these in your heart and it won't take me long. How do you keep hope alive? Number one, notice this. In the promised one, know that you are blessed. You're blessed if you believe in Christ, and you, that, that's, then you are on the receiving end of these, this promise that was given so long ago. You believed in Christ, you're in Christ, and you are blessed. That's where all this was going. You are as blessed as you can be in Jesus Christ. You already are blessed. The little girl got saved in my house this week, came down to my study in the basement and said, Grandpa, can you come up and talk to me? I need to be saved. And she wasn't fooling. She wanted to get a pastor in on this, right? So mama was talking to her. Grandma was talking to her. Grandpa was talking to her. And she was telling the stories that she learned in Juana in Sunday school. And she listened. She was telling the story that she saw outside. She would given all the detail about how bad Herod was. The whole thing that she is giving. The de- She's explaining hell in a very graphic and frightening way, right? And then she was saying, I just want to be a really good girl from now on. I don't want to be bad anymore. We looked at each other, we thought, <laughs> is that what happened to you when you got saved? You started being really good and you were never bad anymore. <laughs> Why are you laughing? Yeah. See, because we had to, we had to go deeper with the gospel. No, it's not a moral reformation program. It's this righteousness of Jesus Christ put on your account and your sin put on his account. It's the most amazing good news you ever heard. You are in Christ. That means you are blessed. Remember that. Now, second thing you want to remember how to keep hope alive is you're not just blessed to be blessed. You're blessed to bless others. That's what he said to Abraham. He goes, I'm going to bless you because I want you to be a blessing to everybody else, all the nations of the world. This is an indiscriminate blessing. I want you to be unprejudiced in the way that you bless everybody, even Gentiles. Praise God, right? Praise God, most of us are Gentiles today. Thank the Lord, that's true. This is how we keep hope alive. In the promised one, we're blessed. We're blessed to bless others, and even in a cursed world, blessing is coming, and we need to see it like that. So it may be a season of celebration, And it also may be a season of hardship, but it can also be a season of hope when you understand that. So aren't you glad you learned a little bit more about Christmas in Genesis? So years ago, we had a bad Christmas. I remember that Christmas so well because we didn't have the money or the time. We were just trying to stay ahead of life, and we didn't get a tree. And we were sitting in this little deer, you know, hunting cabin that we were living in between houses, And the kids were like, We don't have a tree. And I said, Well, we live in the middle of a forest, you know. So I don't think it'd be bad if you would just go out and get a tree. And so out the door they go and found a saw somewhere. And little Kyle goes out into the forest and I was feeling really sad. He cut the top out of an evergreen tree of some kind and come dragging it back in. He leaned it up in the corner and we tried to put lights on it when the light was like Charlie Brown, you know, when we put the lights on it fell over. Uh, the heat out there didn't work very well. Uh, sometimes the heat would work, and the, 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 the water didn't work. But the water and the heat never worked at the same time. And so that was the year that Wesley was born. And I said to Lois, maybe you should take Wesley and go visit your mom for a while. And then come back on Christmas. Christmas is a Sunday. I said, come back on Saturday night, and we'll all go to church together on Christmas So we're out in the middle of nowhere because we're between these two houses. That's a long story. And and we're feeling extremely discouraged. And we have very little. We'd move my library out there, and then it rained, and that leaked on my library. Um, Everybody was sick at the same time. Everybody needed to go into the bathroom because everybody was sick at the same time. It was not a good time. So then the family came back, and I was trying to pretend like everything was okay. I was trying to pretend to the church like everything was okay because I was humiliated. And that morning when we, we went to bed on Saturday night, it was kind of cold, and it snowed in the night, and, and we live way, way out in the country, It it's going to be hard to get to church. And on a normal Sunday, it was going to be hard to get to church. But on this Sunday, when I went out to the car to warm it up, I noticed that the tire was flat. It's the only car that we had. I'm really not that mechanically inclined, especially in a snowbank. So now I'm out there trying to figure out how to make that jack work and how to get that spare tire and hoping that little donut thing actually had air in it. Guys like me don't air up their donut. You know, they just don't think of stuff like that. By the grace of God, you know, and probably the help of my guardian angels, I was able to get that wheel on the back of that car, that van, and we took the family in town. And um, we talked about it. I said, you know, it really just seems desperate. We don't have very much money. We don't have a tree. We don't have a decent car. We have people that would help us, but we're kind of embarrassed to tell them because we're embarrassed about our circumstances. God must be doing something. During that time, we came back from Christmas at Lois's family, and we decided to spend the rest of our Christmas holiday with other family because our house was, like, not very nice. So we went to visit my brother-in-law, Jim, up in Coldwater. That night, uh, it was Christmas, uh, they had a New Year's Eve thing. And at the New Year's Eve thing, Jim said, would you give a devotional? Would you preach? And I said, to be candid, I kind of got the wind knocked out of my, I got my wind knocked out, and um, I'm kind of discouraged, and I don't really think I have much to say, and that's really unlike me. And Jim knew that, so he said, oh, come on, Ken, just like, why don't you share your goals for the new year or something? Uh, In the front of my Bible, I had a, a place where I had put my life goals. And I knew they were right. And so I said, okay. Well, the kids sang that night, and then I opened up my Bible, and I went through my life goals for the new year. And, and then I quit preaching, and didn't feel like I really did very well. A lady named Eloise Frankie was in the service, and she came up to me, and she said to me, Pastor Pierpont, I sure loved hearing your family sing, and I appreciated hearing your message. There's a church up in Fremont that needs a pastor, and I just think you'd be a really good pastor for that church. Would you mind if I put your name in? Well, it didn't work out immediately like that, but eventually God sent us to Fremont where we had a wonderful ministry and a little hope was born there. Some of the happiest memories that we have in our life are the ones we made here, but we have some happy memories up in Fremont. But back when we were in that deer shack out in the cabin, you know, out in the country and the snows coming down and the tire was flat and my books were wet and we couldn't afford a Christmas tree, it just didn't seem like God was doing anything good. And right now it might feel in your life like, God isn't doing anything good. I'm here to tell you on the authority of the promises of God. God has a plan. God has a purpose. God has patience. God has power. You can trust him to keep the fire of your hope alive.